What's the name of this podcast again? Lane win by Costabile. Charging toward the net. He scores! It is a Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Monkey Business, brought to you by Lacrosse Monkey here on the Monkey Sports Podcast. Huge episode for you today. We have National Lacrosse Hall of Famer Mark Millen called in, talked to him a few days ago about the growth of the game, some of his biggest moments, a guy that's really climbed every mountain in the world of lacrosse, a certified legend, no matter who you ask. Great conversation with Mark that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, we talk again about the start of the pro, pro leagues and everything and where he was. Uh, we got Hank from Lacrosse Monkey here as well Hello. to talk a little bit about the pro leagues. Hank, how are we doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Excited to be uh, bringing you yet another monkey business here at the start of February. So let's get into it. Big day today, the day that we're recording. The PLL just announced they're coming to Dallas. That's Correct. where we're located. They're going right down the street to play at uh, the Star in Frisco. So let's start there on the tour base model of the PLL and everything like that. Your thoughts? So first of all, for us here locally, super awesome that we got pro lacrosse coming Very back excited. through again. Uh, with sort of the uncertainty of the MLL and the Rattlers currently, it's kind of nice to have some good news of something coming through. And I think the Star is a perfect venue. It seats like 12,000 people. It's indoors. It's got the jumbo screen. You've got kind of the luxury ac- uh, aspect of like the food and the drink and all that. So I think it's a perfect venue for lacrosse and especially in a city that, you know, two years ago when the Rattlers first came in, they sold out every single game, had the best attendance in the league. So this is definitely something that should blow up here in the in the summer this summer. And it's cool to see. So we've talked about this before kind of off air, but the PLL, when they first started, you know, putting together the league and saying they were on this tour base model, the biggest thing was like, hey, we're going to, you know, bring lacrosse to all these new heights and these new places that they've never been to before or that the sports never really been to. And then their first season was, you know, Boston, Philly, Atlanta. Yeah, all these places that you would like. Traditional lacrosse marketplaces. Right, exactly. Which, of course, it's a business. Obviously, they need to go where the, you know. For sure. Fish where there's fish, right? But it's cool to finally see. Fish where there's fish. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool to see, like, Dallas that's not really. It's growing, I think, for sure. But it's probably easier for us to say because we're here. But it's cool to finally see, like them going out west to the place that's not Denver or LA. For sure. I mean, and someone who's been here and playing in the sports since like 2005, 2006 and seen the growth of it firsthand, it's it's sort of cool to finally get some more pro action coming through. Over the last like uh, eight or six, eight or seven years, we've seen uh, college teams come through and play at SMU, have like a little jamboree. We'll have a couple D1 and D3 teams come in and that's always really well attended. It's unfortunately, usually really cold for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So for the summer, when you're going to the star, which for those who aren't aware is the Cowboys practice facility up in Frisco, it's all indoor. It's super luxurious, all expense. It's, it's, it's super nice. So for a lacrosse atmosphere, I, I think it's going to be nice. And it's it's nice to see them come west. I mean, we were a little worried about I think the first four cities that they announced they'd already been to last mm-hmm. year. It was all repeats. Kind yeah. of a bummer, but like now they're starting to go a little bit more west and try to figure it out. And I think going west or even going north to like a Minnesota or a Chicago, I know people are claiming for as well, would also be a good look for them. So we talked about this. Uh, for those of you subscribed to Monkey Sports Podcast who maybe listen to some other episodes, we talked about this in our most recent hockey episode of how although Dallas isn't like a lacrosse city, just or yeah, I guess a, a lacrosse area, DFW. It's not a hotbed. Right. But just the sheer size of the city alone, like having – 7 million, 8 million people in the DFW area has to be able to bring in people to a place like the star that the Rattlers close one side for a media side. And yeah, like you said, attendance is always incredible. The MLL championship was there uh, the mm-hmm. season before the Rattlers got there, which was an awesome experience. So I really hope that that the PLL does well there. I'm confident that they will. 
But I kind of growing into the overarching idea, what do you think of just the tour based model as a whole now that we're one year into it? So the tour thing is kind of weird. As someone who kind of looks at sports as sort of almost a regional thing more than anything, you have your team, you cheer for them, you ride or die for them, and you cheer for for colors over than players, right? You cheer for the, the blue and white of the Cowboys or, you know, the red, white, and blue of the Patriots. That's kind of your team in your area, regardless of who's on the team. And so what the MLL did initially is they established teams, they established the marketplaces and have kind of created a history for each of their team, a branding and all that. And that's kind of slowly tapered off as we've gone on and on here and as funding's gone down and there's a bunch of business reasons as well. So the PLL was like, screw it, we're going to go for this crazy model. We're just going to tour around. We're going to try to go to different cities every weekend, give our guys a destination to go to because they're all busy in the summer. A lot of these guys are coaching, they're recruiting, they're out and about. So Working other jobs as for well, sure. too. I mean. Most of those guys are, no, very few people, maybe the top 5% of the lacrosse world in the pro scene is just doing pro lacrosse. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they're coaching, they're working at whatever company, they're selling stuff, they're yeah, doing they, all kinds of stuff. They have to be, sure. And so to see this tour schedule is kind of interesting, but... My biggest thing with the tour schedule that I've kind of struggled to comprehend is why it hasn't gone in more of a like a rock tour kind of, you know, where you're going from city to city to city and you can follow it on a chart right across mm-hmm. the country. You start in the northeast, maybe in Boston, you work your way down, you come down the coast, you go to Florida, maybe head north up to Chicago, west to Denver, and then you finish in L.A. for the end of the year. I think having sort of a more structured tour would be really interesting because right now it's like north, south, north, south, mm-hmm. west. It's kind of all over the place and it's. I think for a fan, that's super hard to follow because it's just a random city every weekend, essentially. Yeah, I get the point, and you, you had made this point earlier in the day before we started recording, and I kind of started thinking about it more. That would be cool. Like, obviously, it works from a rock tour sense mm-hmm. in, like, yeah, you're playing a Tuesday in Oklahoma City and then a Wednesday in Dallas like and then a Thursday in, in Austin days. and then a Friday in yeah. Houston. Right, exactly. So it's you're almost having to do that. Right. But when you have these guys that are like, yeah, I have to go to my job in Chicago and then I've got to fly to Dallas for the weekend to play lacrosse, like it doesn't really, I think logistically, like as a fan, definitely following that, but no fan is going to be like, following that. You know, they're not going to be like, oh man, yeah, and then the next we want to be here, then the next we want to be here. I think like the the travel aspect of it, because there's so much time between weekends, doesn't work well enough to fit into like a schedule i agree that it would be cool for but sure I think it's or if they compressed like it necessary. right if it was a more right. compressed schedule they're like right. we're gonna do two months of lacrosse and then we're done we're yeah, gone that'd be cool you know what i mean like we're gonna wait for the summer recruiting season to be over that usually ends around july 4th typically mm-hmm. for college lacrosse so once that hits they're like all right we're in now mm-hmm. and they could just go hard on and just go for a two-month schedule i'm sure from an injury perspective that's tough and i'm sure from a availability aspect that'd also be tough but they went to a lot of cities that had more indoor stadiums like we have here in Dallas where that heat's like a non-factor. That would also be really interesting to see as well. One thing I've been kind of surprised about that I sort of expected from the PLL when they first announced the tour-based system is like, and maybe it's just because I've not seen it and maybe this stuff does happen behind the scenes, but the PLL's, I mean, pretty well documented. I'm sure anything that they've had has been put on social media somewhere. I'm sure RJ's like, told us uh, at some point. Exactly. Um, I'm surprised it's not more of a spectacle. Like that you go and there's, you know, concerts related mm-hmm. to all this stuff and it's like they're going to player appearances and all this. Like I'm kind of surprised that it's not it's just like, hey, we're in Denver, we're playing three games and then they bail. And you know, out. Right. More so, like a Super Bowl media day availability. Yeah, there's yeah, like exactly. some sort of circus Getting or there Friday night and, and doing yeah. yeah, doing some kind of like, hey, PLL concert or, maybe or whatever. You have if you two, buy tickets, you get in for free. Or maybe you have like two local all star teams come in yeah. like of high school kids and they play each other, something like that. You've got the guys from the PLL are coaching, or maybe they're refereeing, or something like that to, to keep it more sure, engaged. Sure, just around. Because lacrosse is one of those sports where 
you don't really need to be super peak athletic. You don't really need to be super like ready to go. So it'd be really interesting to see them maybe have older PLL guys play with like high school kids or, you know, stuff like that would be very interesting to see from a spectacle perspective. Because I'm from what I remember, and maybe this is just a weird fever dream kind of a memory, but the LXM Pro Tour that used to do the same touring model had had it more like that. I remember they came to Austin when I was in high school and it was awesome. It was, yeah, it was a whole event. It was this big spectacle. So I'm surprised that PLL kind of, and obviously, I, you know, Alex and Pro Tour maybe is a bad taste in some <laughs> people's mouths, but it's something that they definitely did things correctly in the yeah. sense of like they generated, they went to weird spots. Like it was weird to have Pro Lacrosse in Austin in the early 2010s, but it was a cool yeah, experience. I mean, you, you got to take shots, right? You got to take swings. If you don't, you're going to fail, right? Mm-hmm. Like what if they just go to Phoenix and like 500 people show up? It's yeah. like, well, that didn't go well, but at least they tried, right? They went for it. I think sort of both of our hangups with that league at times is sort of their half in half out nature, right? Where they're, they'll say one thing, but then they'll do the complete opposite. Sometimes when it comes to let's grow the game, let's go here. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Salt Lake City, we're not going. Yeah. Chicago, yeah, right. Yeah. Like back to Homewood, like that's fine. And that's cool. I, you know, I love those fields. I love those stadiums. I'm someone who believes that Hofstra Lacrosse's stadium is like the mecca of lacrosse, right? But ultimately you, you need to try, you need to get out there and push it because you know, you look at something like the WWE, which has a traveling schedule. They're going to every city they can. Yep. And that's a much larger league, a much better fan base, but they're going for it. You know, you got to take chances. You got to go, you know, maybe have two games a week, something like that. Just try something new. Especially when the argument, too, because I remember when they first came out and they were talking about the idea of the touring model is like they're banking on people having more of a connection to the player, mm-hmm. like saying, oh, man, I loved Joey Sankey when he was in college, so I'm going to follow the protein that he's on regardless right. of where it is. But then, so yeah, that's great to say that, but then you can't make a team of all Terrapins and play in Maryland. Like, if, no. you're, if you're saying we're going to put, you know... They certainly tried with the Whipsies. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was their goal, right? Was to get college kids that play together to play together, essentially. Right, because they want the fan that grew up like, oh, man, I'm a huge Terps fan. I never get to see them because mm-hmm. I live in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, well, then they need to go to those. But, but no, I, I think they're making the right move. Dallas will be very cool. I'm curious to see how they round out the rest of their schedule. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more repeats. Um, but it's interesting, too, because Atlanta and Dallas, both MLL cities, both teams kind of up in the air. So, so I'm cons- hoping the Conspiracy rallies. hat going on right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Blaze announced they're going to Philly. I guess that's true. The, that's, the Blaze are gone. So when that announcement came out, we got it, shot a message from one of our other employees here. I was like, oh, no. Because that is the same thing up with Atlanta. They announced it. They're playing at the Atlanta Blazes Stadium that they used to play at. And then a week later, they were in Philly. Mm-hmm. And they announced they're going to play at the Rattler Stadium, their home stadium. And that's kind of up in the air. And the Rattlers, the maybe pulling back the veil a little bit just from what we know from working with them and having friends in the, the, small, <laughs> the small Dallas community is... I think that the way that it was handled was not great. I, I think employees kind of showed up to lock doors and shut down email servers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh... I guess the team's gone dark, and then the the league came back and said, "Oh no, the league has assumed the team and all, all this stuff." But it's, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm staying hopeful. I don't think the PLL announcement really bodes well for no it's, for it's our hometown rats. But <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting when you look at it from a league perspective. Uh, you look at the PLL; it's sort of this new league that's trying new things or claiming to. And then you look at the, something like the NLL, which is like the most established and stable of all the leagues right now, mm-hmm. where they've got home cities, they've got fan bases, they've got people that like go to these games, drink a lot of beer and go crazy, you know, yeah. they're playing music the whole time. And then you've got the MLL, which is kind of in between both of those right now, right? They have sort of that tradition of rabid fan bases and sort of fun experiences in game, you know, cheap liquor. It's just a part of sports, right? Right, yeah. But then also they're trying to go more into media and more into interaction. And you look at the difference between the league's interaction on Twitter and Instagram, all that kind of stuff. The ML is trying, but they're just very base level. 
the PLL is going deep and deep because they're they're bringing in the people that kind of understand it a little bit better. When they first started, when the PLL first started, I remember thinking like, my thought is like the MLL has been so complacent with they've been the only real pro outdoor league mm-hmm. in the past two decades pretty much so there's nothing that they've needed to do to grow it's like yeah we're fine right right exactly and like the fan base isn't rabid enough to where people like oh my god all these changes need to be made because of this and this like you would see maybe in the nfl Mm -hmm. or nba or something like the eyes aren't on it enough for change but then when the pll came i think they lit a fire under the mll or Mm -hmm. at least my thought was that they were going to and i yeah i agreed i don't think the mll has reacted in a way that is the most beneficial for themselves i think pro lacrosse is definitely growing which is great and i think maybe a merger would be the best possible scenario so that for was both my initial teams. thought when the pll came out i was like i had flashbacks of so back in the nba i think it was in the 70s they had the aba yeah, and sure. the nba right yep and the second the aba was created everyone's like when's the merger coming mm-hmm. when's because that was essentially their end game right is we're gonna play two three seasons i think it was ended up being like four or five total and they're like, we're just going to merge. That's yep. our whole goal is to merge and to get in with the NBA because they won't give us teams in these cities. So we're going to create our own league in those cities and see if the NBA has to take notice. Mm-hmm. And the ABA came in and just made a bunch of noise, made a bunch of changes to the game and pushed it forward, right? Added the three-point line, added a lot of rule changes. And I thought the PLL would do similar. But with Paul Rabel's sort of spite against that league, he seems to want to be the one to force the MLL to come to yeah. him hand in hat, right? Well, so it seems too now that the PLL is kind of going out and and – picking off these old MLL venues that it's like, maybe we are trending that way. Maybe the mm-hmm. PLL finally says, okay, yeah, we want a local establishment, which is something that Paul has come out and said. He's like, tour league is great, but down the line, I do want to be a city based. For sure. Just like every which other league. Which is much more expensive. Yeah. And the, well, the MLL did that too, though. We talked to Mark Millen about the the early days when it was the, the summer showcase mm-hmm. and they were going around the exact same thing. It was just it's like a the bunch of one tour, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It was like, hey, this is what lacrosse is. Be ready for it. So I, I don't know. I'm maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit woke to the idea that the PLL are going to these old MLL venues to say, like, okay, yeah, the star is awesome or yeah, the place in Atlanta is great. Like, Here's the Atlanta team. The MLL is giving up rights to lacrosse in Atlanta, mm-hmm. giving up rights to lacrosse in Dallas venues, whatever, and moving from there. I think that would be hopefully and potentially the best possible scenario for outdoor pro. Because like you said, the NLL has it figured out. Dude, indoor is awesome. Going also, to box teams is a blast. Their season is in like the perfect time. Yep. They're kind of in the lull between football playoffs and basketball really taking over. Their baseball's not in their way at all. Mm-hmm. They just exist in their own space. They compete a little bit with hockey because they play in a lot of the same stadiums and same markets. But when your hockey team's out of town, your pro lacrosse team's yep. right there. You can uh-huh. go to the game for like 10, 15 bucks, get a beer for like five bucks, and you have a great time, right? Yep. It's cheap entertainment. It's local. And it's something to care about. And I think the MLL lived in that space very briefly in the summers at times, but I don't think they fully embraced it. I don't mm-hmm. think they sort of embraced that cheap, like family entertainment aspect. And that's something that, you know, the PLO is, you know, trying to do, especially going after kids, especially. Yep. It's exciting, though. I mean, again, we'll uh, get to our interview with Mark Millen here in a second, but he talks about kind of where he sees the game going and kind of keeping that same niche and just growing within what it's already in and not trying to be this this big worldwide or countrywide phenomenon. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the pro league is in or rather pro lacrosse as a whole is in the right space and they're moving in the right direction. I think there needs to be just more cohesion that I think comes sooner rather than later. For sure. And a little tease for that Millen interview coming up here soon. U.S. Club Lacrosse League. Coolest thing we've ever heard about. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. It's insane. The we coolest thing ever. We a full episode on that club league. I, I'm it, about to do like a thousand YouTube videos on this league. It's yeah. insane. If uh, if you have the opportunity, Google search some old U.S. Club Lacrosse while you're out there because it's, uh, 
It's crazy. It's almost really. It's almost like the tour model for the PLL and the MLL. Like it was these teams <laughs> yeah, that were just it was kind of around league. and playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in a sense, Mark kind of talks about it. But with that, we'll go into our interview. National Lacrosse Hall of Famer, three-time All-American, two-time All-World MVP, one of the, I mean, top five players of all time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark Millen, currently directing the Millen Lacrosse Camps. We talk a little bit about that, but without further ado, our interview with National Lacrosse Hall of Famer and legend Mark Millen. All right, we're here with National Lacrosse Hall of Famer, MLL All-Star, really any accolade you could think in the, uh, the world of lacrosse, Mark Millen. Mark, how you doing? Absolutely. We're excited to have you on. Um, Obviously, tons of stuff to talk about. You have an incredibly illustrious career. But uh, to start it all off, let's start about where you first began with lacrosse, where you first fell in love with the sport. Yeah, so um, I grew up on Long Island. And uh, even, you know, even though Long Island is such a hotbed, back when I was growing up um, in the, I guess, you know, late 70s, early 80s, lacrosse still wasn't, you know, hadn't really taken a foothold. But uh, I had some guys in my neighborhood, me and my brother, um, you know, we had a pretty good sized neighborhood full of boys and, uh, a lot of the kids were messing around with lacrosse sticks and then kind of shortly thereafter, me and my brother were playing serious baseball at the time. But as we started to get exposed to the lacrosse, you know, sticks and stuff around our neighborhood, uh, our dad, my dad was a high school teacher at Syosset high school, which had a good lacrosse program. And, uh, he came home and said, hey, the lacrosse coach, you know, said that we ought to get a lacrosse stick. My dad brought us home, kind of a funny story. He brought us, me and my brother home, sticks. But all we had really seen, we hadn't even seen the game played live. <laughs> um, we just seen the boys in the neighborhood. So he brought home lawn sticks for us. And uh, we just thought it was like some kind of weird mistake. So we just <laughs> went in the garage and with our, grabbed a hacksaw and cut it in half. And uh, needless to say, my dad, you know, on a teacher's salary, just brought home sticks. He had no clue either. was like, what sure. are you guys doing? You just, you just ruined these sticks. So it was pretty funny. And that's where, we, that's where I got my start. So the, the Mark Millen defensive career ended before it even really could start, huh? Yeah, I know. It's too bad because I love watching great defensemen. And had I seen a little bit more lacrosse at that time, I, uh, I might have just kept that long pole and never turned around, turned, turned back. So, as a Long Island guy, you elected to go to UMass. What was uh, what kind of spurred your decision making and uh, wanted to eventually leave the island? So, you know, I was getting recruited by. Um, I went on a recruiting trip up to Syracuse. Um, the Gates were there. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Marichek had just gotten to school there, and I had a great recruiting trip. Um, my grades in high school were probably not. I, I didn't have quite as many doors open as I would have liked to have had, kind of in hindsight. Um, but, I mean, I, I had decent grades, but, you know, Ivy League schools are out. Some of the really good, some of the good other lacrosse schools, like a Carolina, was probably out. So I was getting recruited. Um, Marilyn came and saw me at my uh, high school. and I ended up just going on a recruiting trip and just, like, almost instantly fell in love with the culture at UMass. There was a lot of talent in the program, and the coach who was there for quite a long time, Dick Garber, he was like a real father figure. He was a legend in the game. and Just the, the way the players interacted and the way he kind of looked over the, with this father figure in the program. And then uh, I watched a game up there. I watched UMass play Syracuse, and I kind of just fell in love with it. And I felt like with all the talent that was there, it was going to be a program that really was about to break through and, and start getting to some Final Fours. It really never happened for me. We were close, but... Uh, Regardless, I had an incredible experience up there. 
that's kind of why I went. So at any point in that whole process, once you kind of got to UMass, were you even considering going anywhere else or was it just kind of one of those moments of like, this is the place to be? Yeah, I mean, I really, I grew up, um, my good buddy in high school was Bill Day. He, uh, he played at Carolina. He coached in the MLL, played in the MLL for a little bit, but we grew up together. And for a while there, we really kind of wanted to go to Carolina together. Um, so that was kind of like one of my first real, when I was probably like a freshman, and then I sort of fell in love with Cuse, and I thought I wanted to go to Cuse. I went on the recruiting trip up there and just absolutely loved it. But then, again, shortly thereafter, going to Syracuse, I, once I got to UMass, I was like, man, this is the place to go. This is this is home for me. So um, that's kind of how it played out. Once you kind of got to UMass and started to acclimate yourself, do you remember like those first couple practices, what it was like transitioning from the high school game to the college game? Were you scared at all? Did you have a confidence of, like, I got this? What was kind of your mindset going into that? One thing I've never been um, is scared, you know. I mean, uh, I grew up, um, I, pl- I played my whole high school career, really ended up obviously playing my whole career a little bit smaller than most guys. So I had um, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I always played and had a lot of confidence. So I was never scared. I do, I do really um, kind of strongly recall those first three practices, mm-hmm. and it's helped me over time to guide young players that are going away to college to help guide them because it is quite an alarming experience. I mean, the first thing is being away from home for the first time was was tough and challenging. It, it takes a couple weeks to settle in, but on the lacrosse field, I was confident, but I just was shocked with the way with just how fast things were moving and how fast the game was playing. And uh, so it definitely took a little bit of time, um, took, you know, caught my lumps a little bit. I got to UMass and there was three guys that were ended up making All-American um, at the attack position. Uh, Rob Cotignato, Scott Hiller, and Jim McAlevey all made All-American that year. So I didn't play a ton as a freshman, but it was a great experience. And I, I do recall those first few practices just being like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> So when you talked about the speed of the game and when transitioning from high school to college, what sort of advice do you give to players to like help them transition to that speed? Is it the way that they practice their stick skills or is it just kind of something they need to experience for themselves to really get used to? Yeah, good question. I mean, um, it really is something that you can't necessarily practice. Um, I think the biggest thing is mentally going in uh, and anticipating that everything's going to move faster. You know, the ball is going to arrive quicker it's going to get thrown harder you know your teammates are going to make better decisions quicker and the ball's you know you're not going to think you're open but then the ball arrives foot speed and the uh the defensive play everything that you're getting attacked quicker and harder slides are coming quicker and harder so not anything you can really practice for but if you go into it and someone guided me going into my freshman fall at UMass and said, listen, it's going to be fast, man. you got to be ready for it. It's going to be really, really fast. Um, I think I think that helps just being mentally prepared. So you talked a little bit about kind of being undersized and having that chip on your shoulder and, uh, and the speed of the game and everything. Do you think the game where it is now has changed to kind of tailor those smaller, quicker guys, or is it still – still tougher for, you know, the, the Will Mannies and Rob Pennells and guys like that that are a little bit undersized to still kind of get their foot in the game? You know, I don't know how much the game has really changed. I mean, if you watch, like, one of my college games, I think the, the, the ball is maybe on the ground a little more. I think the poles, the long poles' ability to handle the ball and get the ball off the ground has changed. So it definitely looks a little bit different. As far as the size of the player, I don't know that there's all that much change there. What's really interesting in lacrosse is, there's always been this, like, you know, oh, I don't know if I can recruit him. And, you know, some of the more elite Division One schools still recruit size 
But just go through the, the roster of elite players for the last 15, 20 years, and, you know, whether it's me or Mike Powell or Rob Finnell or Will Manny, uh, Grant Amen, right? Like, you just go through, and there's, there, it's littered with dominant uh, attackmen, more attackmen than anything else, obviously, but guys that are, like, you know, 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, so the game, the way it's played, and the, the stick is the great neutralizer, so I always think that, like, size just doesn't play that big of a role. Now, again, maybe at, like, the close defensive position, it helps to be a little bigger and a little sure. longer and rangier, but offensively, I don't think it's a big deterrent. So kind of looking back into the college days, who do you think were some of the best players that you ever got a chance to play against defensively that you had to go up against in one-on-one situations? The guy that used to give me a bunch of trouble, and we ended up being teammates um, at UMass, I mean, sorry, at uh, um, on the USA team in 98, was Reed Jackson. He uh, played at Rutgers, and uh, he was he was someone who you know was big and long, and he, always, he had great feet. He did a good job. A guy named Dan DeTola, played at Yale. We didn't play Yale all four of my years, I don't think, although we might have, but he was he was good. Um, he gave me some troubles. And then post-collegiately, I hear people talk about Petro and, you know, all the time, and I was fortunate, you know, because I got to play. I, I was in a unique situation where I really played right at the end of an era of some of the, like, really great players like the John Tucker and Vinny Sombrato and Dave Petromala. I got to play with those guys and then also got to play with the entry of like Casey Powell and, you know, the JJ Bears and stuff. So um, I got to play in a unique circumstance with a lot of the great players. 94, you graduate college, and was there any, you know, plan for playing professionally? I know, obviously, the MLL was still a few years away from its inception and a few kind of clubs and things around there. And we were kind of looking up, we, I think, have a few questions about uh, about your early club, but. Before that, was there any plan to continue to play, or was it just, all right, like I put in my time, and now it's time to go in the real world? You never really thought about playing, like, you know, being able to earn an income from it. Um, but there, remember, there, the NLL, and it was the MILL, right? The Major Indoor Lacrosse League was still called the MILL when I was playing. It switched over to the NLL. Mm-hmm. But I got drafted and played right away for the New York Saints. There was some ability to play professionally, but I think at that time, I can't remember exactly, but I think we played like 10 games. The pay was probably like, you know, maybe a couple hundred, three, four hundred bucks a game. So you, I wasn't looking at it when I graduated. Like, I'm going to play, you know, in two pro leagues and be able to be a pro lacrosse player. Sure. Um, but with the NLL, MILL going on, I definitely knew I was going to play. And then, um, but it, I knew that I was also going to go out and get some kind of real job. But the other thing that was going on, and you alluded to it, was club lacrosse. And club lacrosse, there was no social media at the time, and we didn't play in fancy venues, <laughs> and we didn't have, like, really sick uniforms and everything. So if you just add up, like, the uniforms, the social media, the TV coverage, and the venues, and just subtracted all that, club lacrosse was the pro league. And all the top players who had graduated during the last five, ten years all played in that uh, club league, and it was really intense. Going off of that club league, how was that organized? Was there like a, a head commissioner? Or was it just a bunch of random clubs in different cities just scheduling games against each other? No, there was. Um, it was called the USCLA, United States Club Lacrosse Association. You know, they had like a whole board and everything. There was there was the North Division and the South Division. Every year, the you know the North, the, a, a team came out of the North and out of the South. And, there was a championship. The championship was really pretty sick. I played 
my first year out of college, I played for Long Island Hofstra Lacrosse Club. Our home venue is Hofstra Stadium. And then we played against Mount Washington Club. And if I went through, there was probably 30 Hall of Famers in the game. <laughs> Petro covered me the whole game. So, you know, I was competing against Petro. Sal Lacasio was in the goal for Long Island Hofstra. And uh, the Gates, I think the Gates were on, I think at least Gary was on the um, Mount Washington team. I mean, it was it was the who's who of, of, uh, of lacrosse at the time. And it was it was basically the same as the PLL or the MLL without all the, the fancy stuff. So I'm curious, you're talking about without, you know, all the media and everything. Was this something that was attracting fans? I mean, obviously you'd take any lacrosse fan now would have killed to be there but it was it something that you guys were playing in front of people or was it just uh, you know meet up and, and play a game yeah so surprisingly like the elite clubs like i played i played for long island hofstra and then when i moved to baltimore i played for mount washington for a bunch of years and uh the games were on friday nights and uh mount washington we would get you know 500 to 2,000 fans there believe it or not i mean it was wow. it was just a uh you know a grassroots you know, movement. People knew that all the best college players had been playing and they would turn out on a Friday night at Mount Washington. And I don't think all the clubs were drawing like that. Mount Washington is pretty unique. There's a lot of superstars players there. And um, so it wasn't, you know, all the, all the venues were not like that. You know, you might play on a Sunday afternoon with 50 people there, but mm-hmm. some of the games were drawing pretty well. So were you guys like actually practicing for this or was it kind of like a men's league is nowadays where you just show up for the game and then get out of there and go grab some beer after? Yeah, I mean, it's cool just even answering the questions because it, it uh, reminds me of, of the days. Yeah, we would actually practice once a week. Um, definitely a different time and a different culture. There was there was no scrutiny and, you know, you didn't have to go out there and perform on, on Saturday afternoon in front of NBC cameras and stuff like that. But uh, so the, the post-practice bar scene was pretty rowdy. <laughs> But, but yes, we practiced uh, usually once a week for that, for that league, for the club league. And it's weird now because you call it, like, people are so caught up in, like, club is synonymous with, you know, the term club is either college club, you think of that, which is a little secondary to elite division one or division two or division three. Um, and then youth club is, you know, the 91s Long Island Express, and people kind of get caught up. They don't really know what club is. It was called club, but it was basically the pro league so it was really really competitive so we'll jump around a little bit so year 2000 you get uh, the mll summer showcase so the mll comes around and you've been playing on the club circuit for a little bit was there any uh, or rather maybe walk us through what the how you were approached to play in this in this summer showcase yeah so that's another really great story for me in that i was working for warrior at the time and dave morrow at warrior um so the, the whole MLL came about from the 1998 World Games, which was arguably the championship game is pretty pretty famous, arguably one of the best games ever. We were leading, USA was leading Canada 11-2 at one point. We ended up winning in overtime. It was at Hopkins. Um, it was probably up until the time for many years after it was the most televised game. So Jake Steinfeld had either been at that game body by Jake mm-hmm. had either been at that game or saw it on TV and then linked up with Morrow, Dave Morrow and said, let's, let's get this league off the ground. And I was working for warrior at the time. So I was like intimately involved in all the planning. Um, there was a sports marketing agency called SFX and they were up in New Jersey and they were kind of a behind the scenes operator of the league. And I was involved in some of those meetings. So it was pretty cool. Um, 
to, to kind of be involved in the whole back end planning and getting the thing up and running. Seeing where pro lacrosse is now, did you ever? Could you have ever guessed that when you were playing in the first handful of games around the country that we'd be at a point where you know there's two leagues and all this national coverage? Yeah, I mean, when we did it, when we did it, the showcase and the you know many years of the MLL. I know there's so much conversation about what the MLL did wrong and you know why the PLL was created. And you know, I try to stay out of all that, but at the end of the day, the the uh, the showcase was done really well and. The first bunch of years of the league was done really well, so I could envision. Um, we all thought at the time, in 2000, you, I looked at some old interviews recently because the MLL's been putting stuff out. Mm-hmm. We, we all felt that we were pioneers. I don't know how much people know about the history, but there was a pro outdoor league in like the late 80s, I think, and it was terrible. It lasted a half a season, and then it folded, so... For all intents and purposes, all the players felt like they were pioneers, and we always we, we all thought that we were you know starting something that would be around for a long time. One of your uh, your fellow players from that summer showcase, John Grant, recently came back and uh, started playing in the MLL again. Got any pod exclusives for uh, Mark Millen comeback twenty twenty one? No, no, <laughs> because I've already I don't know if you guys followed it, but I already did that once. Right? And, yeah, exactly. Uh, twenty thirteen. Yeah, and I came back and I was in unbelievable shape. And uh, my fellow UMass alum and uh, buddy on on uh, my Cannons team one year, uh, Kevin Lavelle was on on that team that I came back, the Rochester team. And after a couple practices, he was like, "Damn, you're literally moving exactly the way you did in 2005," <laughs> which was all good. But I just couldn't sustain it. I was trying. I tried to convince myself that I could play a little bit differently and play a little bit slower style mm-hmm. and I couldn't do it I just had to keep playing the way I knew how to play and my body wouldn't hold up so I didn't even make it through that whole season are you still getting a chance to play though every now and then like going to those I know there's a big tournament out like at Lake Placid are you getting a chance to play in any of those summer leagues with some of the older guys so it's really weird um, I'll give you kind of a crazy analogy like when people say you know try to quit this or that, quit smoking, smoke a carton of cigarettes, you'll smoke so many, you'll just be sick and not want to play, or not want to smoke another one. I know that's a little crazy analogy, but um, I, don't, I don't know if I'd really recommend that. But for me, in lacrosse, <laughs> I played so much um, post-collegiately. You know, that club league was, as I said before, the pro league. And then I played nine years in the NLL and was whistling off every weekend and being the type of player I was, I was targeted and I got the crap beat out of me. Um, and then all the years I played in the uh, MLL. So now I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't. I have plenty of opportunities. A lot of my buddies do go play, but like I kind of got my fill. And uh, so I don't play that much at all, if at, if at all. So not playing as much. I, I know you're still in part of the, the game when it comes to the coaching aspect. What's kind of been the most rewarding part of you giving back and teaching kids how this game is meant to be played? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely, you know, and, and again, people say this and it could so easily be construed as cliche, but when you look at yourself as a player and all the things you did, that's all great. But the impact I've been able to make through my camps and stuff, I, I've had close to 30,000 kids come through my camps and sign up for my camps that I've actually had to got to work with and then probably another 50 to 100,000 kids that I've just gone to clinics and tournaments and camps and met and uh, the ability to like mentor young kids and teach them the game I, I did back in the early 2000s I realized my career wasn't going to go on forever and I wanted to 
create a little bit of a legacy. So I did this Mark Millen's Offensive Wizardry DVD, which, you know, even pro players to this day tell me, man, I watched that growing up. So <laughs> the thing I'm most proud of looking back is just the impact and the mentorship that I've been able to provide and the instruction that they've been able to provide young players for a long time. So speaking of looking back and things like that, what's your uh, number one lacrosse memory? I would imagine that 98 uh, championship game is up there. Yeah, the 98, and again, this is kind of crazy, but like I had posters on my wall, and I've gotten a little bit, I don't know if you're on my Instagram or anything, but like I've gotten a little bit more uh, sentimental over the, like, the last <laughs> year or so, just looking back at some old tapes. I just watched an old UMass game where we were down 12-5 to Yale and ended up pulling it off in like the last couple seconds, and the 98 game was unbelievable, and some of the MLL titles, um, I won. I was part of it. The Wings team. We went in to Toronto and shocked the world and beat the Toronto for the NLL championship in 2001. So there really has been a lot of incredible memories. But to me, the one that sticks out the most. Growing up, I had USA posters, lacrosse posters, on my wall. So I just really wanted to play. Like a kind of my lifelong lacrosse dream was playing for Team USA. So in '94, I graduated from UMass and tried out for that team. The tryout was actually the summer of 93 and when I got the call and I got the letter that you made the team that was it wasn't really an on-field moment because I didn't wasn't on the field at that moment but that was the best moment of my lacrosse career just you know the lifelong dream coming true and knowing I was going to wear that jersey for real is there a different uh you know set of nerves that come into the game when you're you're lacing up for team USA versus for UMass or in the in the professional league you know it's a great question not really you know, I, I, I teach young players, and I sort of understood this from pretty early on. Like, my whole thing was I was going to practice the way I was going to play, and I, I practiced, and I did a lot of visualizing so that I practiced so hard, even on my own, I would go out and shoot. And once I got to the game, you know, whether it was the NLL championship in Toronto or Team USA, like, you were just you were playing another lacrosse game, and it was a big game. And the other thing that helped me, and again, I talk to young players about this. What separates some of the greatest players for me are if, if you would have watched me play in a summer league game and watched me play in a Team USA semifinal you know, or championship, there really wasn't a lot of difference. I just was wired a certain way to go so hard and play hard and compete. I didn't really get caught up in that moment, you know, like I have the uniform on now and now it's now I got to play differently. I just was wired to play one way. So the nerves didn't change too much. Where do you see lacrosse continuing to grow? Do you think it's something that becomes a mainstream, you know, NBA, NFL, or does it kind of just keep growing within its niche? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I don't know the answer to that. I would have, I would have expected that after, you know, launching the MLL in 2000, and, you know, being here in 2020 now, that I guess I wouldn't have expected there to be two leagues, and whether that's good or bad, obviously, you know, sometime down the road here, there's going to be one league, I would assume. And I would have guessed that by now, you know, you have a little bit more fan interest. There's, you know, obviously a lot of lacrosse interest in this country, but if you went to an MLL game in 2002, you might have had 4,500 people there, and... You know, you go to a PLL or an MLL game and there's not that many more except for some special games here and there. So with that said, 20 years later, I don't know exactly where it's going to be. I I don't see it dying, that's for sure. 
Um, but I don't know if it ever moves into a true mainstream. I, I don't know for I don't really know what my feeling is for sure on where that's going to be. Do you think there's anything that that needs to be tweaked to make lacrosse that, or is it just something that it, it's always going to kind of have that hurdle? I think one of the challenges that everyone's tried to figure out is if you look, you know, when do you play the leagues? You know, most of the most of the you know most of the sports like football, youth football is played in the fall, and high school football is played in the fall, and college football and pro football is played starting in the fall and then lacrosse is really a you know winter slash spring sport now and the fact that mll and pll is most of the summer into the fall so i think that's one challenge um i just feel like there's a bunch of challenges um that i'm not exactly sure how to overcome them if i could you know magic wand i think playing in the spring would probably be a little better but how that stacks up and trying to compete against college lacrosse and stuff would be a challenge. But the summer's a really difficult time because club lacrosse and youth tournaments have taken hold in, in such an incredible way now that I have two young boys now myself. Um, I have a 15 and a 13-year-old, and all we're doing all summer is traveling around playing in tournaments. And so people are always gone and traveling and playing that the summer's a really hard time for them. What's the uh, the main goal, or rather, what can, can people expect when, when signing up and going out to a, a Mark Millen camp? Yeah, I think the thing that we do, and we've always done differently, I'm just kind of fanatical about like organization and, and making sure. And also, the, probably one of the good things I did was put my own name on my camps, and one of the bad things I did was put my own name <laughs> on my camps. So, um, but what you get when you when you have my name on it is I, I take tremendous personal pride in it. We're super organized, um, and we put such an incredible premium on instruction. I've seen so many camps before where you show up and the, the coaches roll the balls out and the kids just run around and play and they have a great time, but they don't get a whole lot of value out of it. And every one of my camps, whether it's Ohio or Charleston, North, uh, South Carolina, Long Island, we put such a heavy premium on fundamentals and instruction, and that's, you know, across the board at any location. So that's really what you're going to get, and we take a lot of pride in it. Well, perfect. Uh, you got anything else to add to us before we uh, let you go? No, appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, it's been a blast to, to catch up, and uh, again, I appreciate it. All right, yeah, absolutely. There we go. Uh, world champion, lacrosse, Hall of Famer, Mark Millen. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Once again, thank you to Mark Millen for coming on the podcast and talking to us. What do you guys think about the pro game and the growth that has developed since the 1990s until today? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you can find us. Shout us out and let us know what you think about the pro scene as a whole. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Monkey Business brought to you by Lacrosse Monkey on the Monkey Sports Podcasts. We will be back next week for another episode of The Outer Roll, this time with Ev Bomarito from Vaughn Custom Sports to talk about new hockey goalie pads and uh, kind of the growth of technology in that game as well so if you know any hockey fans you are a hockey fan yourself know any goalies make sure to get them subscribed to the monkey sports podcast we will be back for another episode of monkey business at the start of march but until then be good or be good at it we'll see you next time